Coming up next, the booking reads the 39 steps. Hey everybody, welcome to The Booking. This is Nathan. My name is Nathan, and I sound like this. What's your name, and what do you sound like? My name's Jake, and I sound like this. And what is your name, and what do you sound like? My name's Ben. I sound like this. All right, we've been introduced. Now, let's talk about the 39 steps. All 39 of them. We might, just, I might leave out a couple. You're going to leave out a couple? Definitely. You only want to talk about 37 Seven. steps? I think that's a reasonable number. <laughs> What's better? The 39 steps, the 10 commandments, 13 or seven days and seven nights. Oh, what are the other no- great number movies? <laughs> the number 23, the great Jim Carrey classic. Oh. Yeah, that deserved that. Oh. Um, that was one of the most painful things I've ever had to sit through. Seven, the great David Fincher film. I've also moved painful. Us, moved us into the realm of movies. What are the other number great number books? Can we name another number book beside without resorting to the internet? Surely we can. Seven. Five children and it. Yeah, I mean, my joke for the pay, for the people it was seven habits of highly effective people and twelve rules for life and. Sure, sure. You what did you say? Five children and it. Oh sure. Well, there's twelve little Indians. The or seven little Indians, whatever number Agatha of little Christie. Indians. There's the Agatha Christie thing. Although I think that's been retitled to, and then there were none because people don't like the Indian thing. Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe for other reasons, I don't know. Huh. The only Christie book I've ever read, actually. Really lame book in my opinion. Uh, well, I mean, I, I know I'm famous for not liking Christie anyway at this podcast, but I just don't, the twist in that one, without ruining it, is not my favorite. I didn't like it. The book in general? No, I didn't the, like the it. twist? I didn't like the book, I didn't like the twist, I just didn't like it. I mean, spoiler alert, isn't the twist kind of, nobody did it that you could have known about, it was just another guy well, it was one of the guys on the island. There were probably a couple of clues. He pretended that he was one of the victims, but really that was a fake, and he was busy setting up the murders of everyone else, and then he suicides. And So for the purposes of our understanding, as we read the book, he actually is one of the murder victims. And That's then... right. I just don't like that. Didn't like it. Is that the template for thousands of slasher movies? Mm-hmm. Um, all right, we've not successfully named another number work of fiction. The two, the three. The house. House. Of. Seven Gables? Seven Gables. There you go. Another great work of number fiction. (laughs) What is that book? It's a Nathaniel Hawthorne book about a house. It's got seven gables, and uh, I'm sure some things happen there. I haven't read it. The gables aren't green, though. And there's nobody named Anne. There might be a person named Anne for all I know. There might be. Actually, the gables might be green for all I know. What is a gable? I don't even know what a gable is. Clark Gable. Part of a wall that encloses the end of a pitched roof. Okay. Part of a wall that encloses the end of a pitched roof. Ta-da. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, we're here to talk about The 39 Steps, one of the original adventure movies. I think I inflicted this. Oops. I mean, I think I, yeah, sorry. I keep saying movie because. Alfred Hitchcock is what you think of when you think of The 39 Steps. Great. Mm-hmm. Alfred Hitchcock in his early yeah. British career made. Or really at the height of his British career. Made, 1935. 1935. Made this film before he came to Hollywood. But it's one of his, one of the classics of his British period. Not one of those weird, janky, early silent ones that aren't even suspense pictures. It's like one of the classic British movies of Alfred Hitchcock. And it's pretty good. And I think we'll talk about it over on Sanity at the Movies around the time this podcast comes out. If you want to 
check out our sister podcast. But the thing is, we're talking about the book. And I decided we'd do that because we were looking for books to do. And I was like, hey, an adventure novel. That sounds fun. We like adventure. This is supposed to be the novel that like created the adventure novel, basically created the whole genre of man on the run, which is a pretty great genre. Man on the run. It certainly inspired any number of Hitchcock style suspense thrillers. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the Fugitive TV series and movie. I mean, you know, anytime you see a narrative born, I mean, any kind of story that's just a guy moves from place to place, dodging bad guys. Interacts and, with interesting yeah, yeah. people along the way. Yeah, the, uh, it's mm-hmm. uh, that sort of adventure style. Apparently, I mean, he makes friends that help him. Sure. Right. Yeah. And is fleeing away from something as opposed to towards something. You know, it's right. not Odysseus trying to get home. It's a guy that's been wrongfully accused in this particular case, but it can be anything. Right. Or wrapped up in something. And... Right. He's got to be on the run. So, yeah. Yeah. There we go. There you yeah. go. Uh, we thought this would be fun. And was it? Did it live up to our expectations? Well, it's kind of fun. Yeah. Well, it been. Don't that give it away. Might be what I would say. <laughs> yeah. That might. That, that, yeah. You could say that. You could say it was terrible. I could say any number of things. Listen, what you should say is something that involves giving us context for this word. He's the context king. Operating the context ring. Do my context thing. Ben, what state are you from? (laughs) Tennessee. Ben, of course, is from Tennessee, and he's going to provide some (laughs) much-needed context on this work. (laughs) 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 Hey, hey, as the guy that's always done this podcast, (laughs) you all know the shtick. It's from Tennessee, and... (laughs) Well, we need some famous rivers. We got up the Chattahoochee. You got the Tennessee River. The Chattahoochee. I the like Chattahoochee. All right. I, the Chattahoochee is a pretty great sounding river. Pardon me, sir. It's the Chattahoochee. Choo choo. <laughs> Way down yonder on the Chattahoochee. Is that actually the song? No, it's the Chattanooga Choo Choo. <laughs> no, no. Well, but what is? Wait, that's what? an Alan Jackson song. Way down yonder on the Chattahoochee. Oh. Yeah, but I'm not gonna finish the line. <laughs> Something naughty happened. <laughs> well, the next line's naughty. Yeah. Okay. Oh, there you go. Apparently, you should not go way down yonder on the Chattahoochee. All right. That's more times than I've said the word Chattahoochee than I expect. Chattahoochee, Chattahoochee, Chattahoochee. It loses all meaning if you say it too often. As does any word, but especially that one. It was full of meaning before. (laughs) Yeah, we all know what we mean when we say Chattahoochee. Uh, I think this, this this podcast represents the sum total of times I've said Chattahoochee in my life. I don't think I've ever said it outside of this podcast. Ben, how many times would you say, as a Tennessee native, famous Tennessee boy? He grew up singing that Alan Jackson song. Right. I've never heard of it. Are you serious? I think so. You're a liar. I, I might know it without knowing that I know it. I mean, I, I can't hear it in my brain. Way down <laughs> yonder on the Chattahoochee. That was a good start, but a bad end. Oh, I just saw the line. That is <laughs> naughty. Yeah, um, I told you. <laughs> I mean, it's naughty in a kind of adorable sort of way. But anyway. We mm, laid rubber on a Georgia asphalt, got a little crazy, but we never got caught. Uh, there we go. Down by the river on a Friday night, pyramid of cans in a pale moonlight, mm-hmm. talking about cars, dreaming about women. Never had a plan, just living for the minute. I hate music. <laughs>
Did you say the naughty line in there? No. Oh, okay. No, no I skipped it. It's okay. what comes this way down yonder of the Chattahoochee. That line, and then everything else that yeah. I said. Okay. Is that they got that kind of like, I'm a dissipated person, go nowhere, <laughs> emulate my life, you idiot. <laughs> I hate country music <laughs> and singer-songwriters. 90s country music. So what happened is my parents divorced, and then they both decided they liked country music for a couple of years. Huh. And that happened to... Uh, Include an Alan Jackson era in there for them. A little Alan it. Jackson, a little Garth Brooks. I like a little older George country. Street. I like alt country, but I don't like. Saw Alan Jackson in concert when he came to Evansville. Saw Garth Brooks in concert when he came to Evansville. It's the thing that my parents would have taken us to. Yeah, well, huh. your parents both turning to country music. That's the kind of thing that a child never really overcomes, is it? <laughs> 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 People try and <laughs> say it's for the best, or we needed this, or you know, they'll, we're all happier this way. They'll be happier when I'm happier. It's not your fault. It's son. not your fault. <laughs> uh, wow! But a kid, a kid knows. A kid knows. <laughs> We've got three children of divorce here in this podcast, oh, ladies man. and germs. Okay, Ben, give us some context on. Oh, all right, all right, all right. This is a book written by John Buchan. That's the best way I know how to pronounce his name. I want to say Buchanan, but it's not Buchanan. It's Buchan. Buchan. I don't know. (laughs) 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 That's all I got. Oh, all right. Okay. (laughs) He was Scottish, and... This guy was an interesting guy. He he lived uh, he lived a lot of different roles in his life. So I'm just going to take a cheaty, shortcutty way out and read you a couple of Wikipedia paragraphs because Wikipedia. I take a cheaty way out. I read from I can no longer. I can no longer talk. What can I say? This is my man, my boy, John Buchan. Never heard of him. Uh. <laughs> yeah, Jim Buchanan. That's what I said. Yeah, John Buchanan. Yeah, hey Buchanan. My name. Oh. <laughs> you need a uh, what's his face? Just never mind. Christopher Walken. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I was hearing Christopher sure, Walken, yeah. but, I was hearing but I, what I was actually imagining was Tony uh, Soprano. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. <laughs> uh, I don't know why I can't. Pull his name right now. Uh, He's a different comedian. He's okay. dead. Okay. A dead comedian. I really like him. We all do. A He's dead hilarious. comedian. Was he like in movies we or stand up or Norm McDonald? Norm McDonald. Okay. Uh, okay. We need Norm McDonald just deadpanning Jim, okay. Jim Buchanan. Yep. Jim <laughs> Buchanan. That's what I said. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. <laughs> all right. This dude, John Buchan. John Buchan. He was born in 1875 and he died in 1940. So he got an interesting swath of life. And Like I said, I'm going to cheat here. So, from Wikipedia. After a brief legal career, Buchan simultaneously began his writing career and his political and diplomatic careers, serving as a private secretary to the administrator of various colonies in southern Africa. He eventually wrote propaganda for the British... What? What are you doing? I wasn't doing anything. Oh, my goodness. I was looking at a thing. Oh, my goodness. I I think I bumped an ad or something. Wow. Wow. It's IMDb. Okay. (laughs) 
Jake's invested in what I'm saying, folks. <laughs> He's with me. He's with uh, Wikipedia. I want to hear Ben read random Wikipedia. Stuff. <laughs> uh, ben, you read that Wikipedia. Five I was Instagram stories. Here okay. we go. Here we go. He eventually Here's wrote my TikToks. He eventually wrote propaganda <laughs> for the British war effort during the First World War and skipping on stuff. And then he kept writing. <laughs> What's your problem? Let's hear Ben a bridge Wikipedia. <laughs> okay. I'm going to keep abridging. Okay, I'm done. I'm done just reading Wikipedia. So he served in the First World War. He did a lot of stuff. He was like a, he was like a journalist slash intelligence officer slash propagandist and like. Upper class guy who entered the war as an officer was familiar with the world. He graduated from Oxford. He was a writer there. He wrote poetry, if you would ever believe that. Mm. After reading the 39 Steps, he wrote essays. He liked to write. And after the First World War, and oh, where am I here in my context? He was elevated to the peerage in preparation for becoming the Governor General of Canada. Mm. which that was near the end of his life. So that was 1935 to 1940. He died in 1940. He was just in his 60s. And the governor general of Canada is like prime minister, basically, sort of guy, sort of-ish. He represents the king and he governs the colonies. And he was the guy to send Canada into World War II officially. So... And this guy was like an elder in the Church of Scotland and all kinds of stuff. So he just lived some of the life that you get the sense of in the 39 steps. You really do. Like a guy who could probably speak a bunch of languages, had been overseas to all these different places, had been in an administrative role governing British colonies, and then been in intelligence and been in propaganda and been a journalist and mixed with all classes of people while remaining high class the whole time, ending his life as Governor General of Canada after being elevated to the peerage. He just had an interesting career. Wrote a lot of books, wrote a hundred things, 30 novels, seven collections of short stories, and various biographies, like biographies of Walter Scott and Caesar Augustus and Oliver Cromwell. So this guy had loads of interests. He really is a little more like his hero than you might imagine. But he started writing adventure novels here, Mr. Buchan. Yeah. So he started writing adventure novels, and in 1915, he published The 39 Steps, which is his most famous, and it was the first appearance of Richard Hannay, who would appear in several more novels by Buchan. And I, I don't know, this guy was just, he was actually a patriot. He was actually a man of all seasons and a man of the world, like his hero, and he just wanted to write something fun and silly that had some basic values that he stood for. And I guess he did. This book was super popular. People loved it. And it was, even though it was published as a book first in Scotland, it was actually serialized before that in an American sort of pulp magazine. So it was, it just got worldwide exposure. It was a huge success. And then, of course, it's been adapted into like, five different movies, and a bajillion radio plays by the BBC. And they're still talking about making some other, I think, Netflix 39-step series or something, or movie. So people are not done adapting this. That's this guy. That's Buchan. But just a word about the kind of the pulps of the time. So 
the All Story magazine was an American pulp that that published this, and these it was a story paper. Story paper was this thing that existed in Britain before America, where boys could read stories about adventures, and some of it very salacious and lurid and violent, and some of it eh, maybe not, but adventure stories for boys starting like in 1777 in Britain and going on until like 1973 when the final story paper called The Rover shut down in Britain, which is crazy, the serialized format. In America, these things had a different time span. It's like 1850 to 1910. And story papers, that kind of thing, leads in to dime novels or penny dreadfuls where you get, we're going to collect these serialized things in a little super cheap paperback form and repackage them and sell them again. And so UK is sending its sort of penny dreadfuls, which is what they called them, to the US is sending its dime novels to the UK. And these things are going to lead into series books like the Bobsy Twins and the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and Tom Swift and all that stuff. I'm trying to figure out who wins the inflation war. If we have dime novels and they have penny dreadfuls, that means they're doing well, right? It means if it's the same value, yeah, they got 10 times the value. and They're getting a whole dreadful for a penny. Yeah, and we have... I don't know what the exchange rate was. I think that would you'd have to know the exchange <laughs> rate to know what the actual value was coming across. Well, if it's going to be equivalent, then their penny's worth a dime. Yeah, that's a bad exchange. Man, I don't know what happened. The world wars changed everything, and then we conquered. The British Empire was eclipsed. Yeah. Yep, there you go. Well, this was super popular that way, serialized as a novel. And this, obviously, Buchan, even though he was governor general of Canada and sort of an important, semi-important political figure in England at the time and had this career full of medals and awards and a peerage, the 39 steps is what you remember. And then you remember Hitchcock, (laughs) not the novel. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of funny. Yeah. But this guy, I wonder how he's perceived, remembered by the British because... Well, on our actual novel, there's a Christopher Hitchens quote. Yes, there is a Christopher Hitchens quote. Yeah, it seems like British boys grow up with this thing and they like it. Well, in the BBC, yeah. that's like the official government broadcasting. It's the PBS. British. It's they're, right. they're the ones that keep adapting this thing. So it must have some kind of cachet as a cultural artifact that people just like and remember fondly. I think so. And I think it does embody some British morals and ideals of like, yes, here's the man of the world. He's high class, but he understands the low class. Perfect gentleman. He can't do in between. Right. The middle class he is stupid. He can't do in between the middle. Yeah, that's right. Jews. Which is funny because the middle class is the one who was buying up all these story papers and things. It was it was and it that's was the way. It was the new class that had a little extra pocket money and a little extra leisure time and their kids who were like, well, I can afford to spend a penny to read a story, so I'll buy this. And so that's the class that's actually buying up. Yes, you know, but they're also imagining cereals. that they are now the uh, part of the elite class and that yep. they came from the low class and that they yep. understand both sides and are actually not the middle class that they really are. Yeah, I think that the whole history of this stuff is Placing really both interesting. Both sides of their snobbery. Like, yep. Yeah, because you've got this. This is not a salacious book. The violence is pretty tame. There's nothing lurid really happens, just sensational. Right. You know? But so I, I guess you wouldn't have called this a penny dreadful, but the penny dreadful is in Britain. 
were the class of story papers that were like really more lurid. Now that's where the legend of Sweeney Todd comes from. Yeah, that's for right. example, a lot of early vampire literature, mm-hmm. kind of cheap. What is it? Er- the vampire? Varney the vampire. Varney, was, there was we a go. Varney the vampire. It was kind of a precursor yeah. to Dracula. Very lurid, very bloody, very sexual. And then you've got the Halfpenny Marvel published to combat the Penny Dreadful. <laughs> it, co- it cost a little less and it was moralizing. And then it became, as A. Milne said, the publisher killed the Penny Dreadful by the simple process of producing the Halfpenny Dreadfuler. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you've got all this lurid stuff coming out all the time. And America has its own lurid stuff coming out all the time. We have Westerns. Well, it is interesting to watch us seize the cultural narrative at a certain point in the 20th century and do away with the aristocrat hero. Because you just, you go back to this era, even even before it. And then Brit, you've got like, a, what's the name of this? The Scarlet Pimpernel, stuff like yeah. that. It's just accepted that an aristocrat, Zorro, you know, you think about a Zorro story. Right. It's just accepted that, you know, a high-born man can come and save us all and be awesome and help all the little people. And then that narrative goes so out of fashion at a certain point. And I think it's especially in the American pulps where you start to, where you have Western heroes who aren't like that. And then you have like the hard boiled kind of heroes who are mostly not the Agatha Christie kind of a feat. There's something aristocratic about what's his face, Poirot, but somebody like Chandler or Marlowe or, you know, Sam Spade, these guys are very decidedly men of the people. Right. Well, Zorro is American pulp creation. Yeah. True. 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 Yeah. And now we have Zack Snyder to Mm. bring back the I'm in charge here kind of hero. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Anything else? No, I don't think so. Well, lucky because I see a little plane flying over. It's the baggage plane, in fact. Indicating baggage check, the part of the show where we check our baggage which you could be reminded of just by a plane flying over, but we're even doubly reminded of it because it's a baggage plane, whatever that is. A plane that carries baggage, I guess. Just like we all carry baggage. What baggage, Jake, did you carry <laughs> into the 39 steps? Nothing. I You wrestled I'd... with this book your whole life. That's right, oh, yeah. Man, it's totemic. All my like expectations I'm... for transcendent boys' adventure novels mm. were bound up inside of me as I came to this book with anticipation, expectation, hopes, and dreams. I had nothing. I thought maybe I had seen the 39 steps at some point, but I don't think I actually have. If I did, it was a long time ago, and I don't quite remember it. So I knew it was a Hitchcock. I knew Hitchcock used the plot or used the conceit or some aspect of it or the name or traded on the popularity of it to make a movie. Right. That's about all I knew. And, and I had the Christopher Hitchens quote on the front that was something like, before there was Arthur Conan Doyle and somebody else. Yeah. Now, although chronologically, somebody this else. is not before there was Arthur Conan Doyle. So. But I think it does say... What was, Con- what was the quote? We all love this book so much that we obviously all have copies of it sitting in front of us that we're going to reference, just like we always do. The 39 Steps, our copy of it. Here. Oh, hey, I should correct something because I'm an idiot about Canada. Yes, But the governor general is like technically over the prime minister and acts on the advice of the prime minister and the cabinet. I was actually wondering about that. Yeah, Yeah, I was, I'm just dumb about the polity. One star. Yep. Maybe zero. I don't know. Christopher Hitchin quote, 
39 steps. I think it was about Buchan. Well, far be it from for any of us to go upstairs and actually look at the book, so we'll never Oh, you got it in your backpack, Ben? This is exciting, folks. This is podcasting in action. Oh, boy. Oh, it's as suspenseful as the 39 steps itself. Which is no, to say, sir. Kind of very mildly. Well, drat. And, folks, we just paused so that we could figure it out. What Hitchens said was he said, and this does make more sense, that Buchan was the bridge between Kipling and Fleming. So from one master that we all love to another master that we all love stood a master that we all love. From Gunga Dean to James Bond, what do you need? You need the 39 steps. That yeah. actually makes some sense. From Gunga Dean to Moonraker. There you go. There are 39 steps. See what I did there? <laughs> I do. <laughs> that was the perfect <laughs> fake, like, polite laugh. Ben, what kind of baggage did you bring to this? I saw the movie once. Hitchcock's movie, that is. Not one of the 20 other movies. It was fun. Yeah. Liked it. I remember liking the movie pretty it's well. Silly and fun. Yeah. That's all. It was uh, a long time ago. Yep. Same long time ago for me. I haven't seen it since. Remember kind of liking it. Ah. Ah. Okay. That was some exciting baggage. Now to the big picture. The part of the show where we give our big picture thoughts on the 39 steps. People have been waiting for it. Guys, what did you think about 39 Steps? It's fine. It's short. It was fun once you got into it. Once he started, once he got on the run, it had a little bit of propulsion to it. I could see it being something that any number of boys would read and be excited about. Yes. But I do think of it as being more of a young adult type of a thing than something I really want to come into our readers to go invest in unless you just are looking for extra books to add to your how many books did i read this year end of year oh very easy book to do that with yeah you can take a couple hours mm-hmm. and yeah now you've read one extra book this year and i uh, can add it to your end of your list and impress people and say that you ticked a box that you know is something of a cultural touchstone for any number of people and certainly foundational to the genre of escape and chase narratives so yeah i mean it um you just actually triggered a memory which is i had a friend well a friend of a friend really who was like a homeschool kid who had read these books and we either watched the movie together or we were just talking about the movie this would have been years ago and he was mad at the hitchcock movie because he loved this book and he was just like hitchcock's hane is not my hane this is a totally different character. He's so cool in the book and he's so dumb in the movie. And like, he really owned this thing. That's which, interesting. Which is weird. It's like impossible for me to imagine. I mean, I can get people loving Tarzan or any number of like characters from these kind of very uh, two dimensional pulp stories. But this guy's pretty thin, pretty weak sauce, in my opinion. Ben, well, I can say my big picture. I guess I might be the most negative one, although I don't know. I It took me a long time to get through this book just because I kept hitting the first chapter and just, like, not liking it at all. And I – not that any of us are huge lovers of this book. I 
this book kind of embodies everything that I don't like. It's kind of the Agatha thing I always describe with not liking about Agatha Christie and that there's no atmosphere and no characters and no sort of dialogue to actually get behind. It's just stuff happening, which is like my least favorite kind of book in the world. It's not his fault. I mean, it's a good fine for what it is. Although my only other kind of criticism, well, I'll save it for twists and turns. Ben, what did you think about the 39 stuff? Kind of fun. Not something I would go back to or even have on my shelf except mm. for this podcast. Yeah, this is going to be a rousing uh It's going to be a rousing discussion. I mean, you do see, I wonder if future Richard Hannay adventures are a little more interesting. What What would be interesting, actually, is if you were the type of writer who was good at atmosphere and character and things yep. like that. Right. But maybe not so good at putting together a little propulsive plot. And I, what would be a really great exercise is to recreate the 39 steps with your character beats and your whatever else, because it does get propulsive at a certain point. And it's, yes. it is just always like, it follows the sort of like golden, I don't know if it's Stephen King or whoever's rule of if your scene says this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened, then it's boring and stupid. Mm-hmm. But if what connects every moment we're seeing is a but mm. this happened but this happened therefore this happened but this happened therefore this happened then you have something that's interesting and propulsive and although i agree with you but doesn't he sort of just stumble on the bad guy's hideout was there any logic to that or did he just randomly go to a completely different country and then find himself did i miss something like when he gets captured and has to blow up dynamite his way out was there a reason that he was there? He was being chased. And so they would, they had. They were chased. They were like drawing him into their net. Yeah. Okay. The way, that, at least the way that I made sense of their house being there is they had known where he was. So they found a place to sort of stake out or hide out or something. Well, but that well, has to have more of that because of all their dynamite and everything. Area. They had a landing strip and they had yeah. all their like C4 and dynamite and whatever right. stocked in the basement. So yeah, he does end up getting... Now, maybe they were chasing him towards themselves. You could sort of backfill it, I guess, but I don't know that it was... To me, at least, it was not readily apparent. No, it could just as easily read like a coincidence. Like, of all the places in all of Scotland, he happened to run right up on their lair uh, while he was being chased by the cops. I guess that felt confusing. When you think it, when you compare this to a hero like James Bond... I found it kind of interesting in its embryonic form that this story is so just like, there's no particular, Hannah, I think that's how you say his name, our protagonist, like he's obviously a cool dude, like a stiff upper lip sort of great guy. He's going to do the right thing and he's pretty competent and capable. Yes, he's he's pretty much just good at everything. But he's always going to say, well, I'm not much of a detective, but I laid out all the clues and figured them out. (laughs) Now, I'm not very good as a driver, but... I swerved and raced around. It's just, yeah, no, he's always it's telling you what that he's. I'm not much of a. I wasn't quite I'm sure. I'm not much how of much a physical d- specimen, d- but I hiked for five days with two biscuits across <laughs> the Scottish. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> yeah, no, that is a pretty common. <laughs> yeah. But there's yeah. like nothing that, as opposed to James Bond, where it's like, it's his job. It's like, why is this guy part of this adventure? It's just because he's bored and he decides to be. Like, he, there's nothing that makes him the guy for this adventure. There's nothing. He was an adventurer to begin with. Right. He was a world traveler. He was looking for exciting, adventuresome things. 
He's totally bored by London and England. And then this interesting character waltz in, waltzes into his apartment and he's like, I think you're kind of full of crap, but your story's interesting so you can hang out here for a while. And then he starts to get convinced and he's like, okay, well, at least this is not being bored. And well, now what am I supposed to do? I'm accused of murder. So yes, I, I'm not trying to like, no, I mean, I it's know. all fantastic and stupid, but from it, a, it just felt from looking at it through jaded modern eyes, having seen a millions of these stories, it just felt kind of weirdly lackadaisical like this guy was just like eh one day i <laughs> decided i'm on an adventure now it yeah it is i mean i think you should remember that this guy that uh, Buchan is breaking new ground right yeah i think that's very and, well, and, and he, he had a pretty self-conscious conception of what he was doing he called this a shocker meaning something that you could just barely maybe believe is happening as, well, a, as someone reading it so like he's doing it for boys and not quite believing in himself as he reads like it's, yeah well but also it's playing into sort of the british spirit of where naval power we go we explore the hannah is actually a colonist from south africa or something right Isn't that how it starts mm-hmm. that's oh, why yeah. he's on he's like right it's like he comes from the kind of people that just like get in a ship and go across the ocean and end up in south africa and then he comes and he travels the world and all the world is Britain and is looking for the next great adventure and fun thing. And he's just embodies that sort of British adventure spirit that right. any British schoolboy at that time would have especially grown up with. And that fuels those naval novels and all that sort of thing too. But it's just interesting. Even when you say that, I'm like, if I was writing that book now, like just writing the story you just described, yeah, I would put so much more mustard on that particular part of the dish. Like it would just be you like, you wouldn't assume it. Yeah, it would be like, well, this guy, he loved to go on adventures. Let me tell you how much he loved adventures. And then this I realize this book kind of does that. He talks about how bored he is, but it's like I would go so far out of my way to make that his character trait. But if you if you were to to come with a different set of assumptions and you're mm-hmm. writing this novel in the 1915. Yeah, in 1915, and this guy's from Texas. Right. And he's Decided to tour the East Coast, and he's bored out of his mind by the civilization of the East Coast because he's from the frontier. Like, he's a Texan. He's the, from the kind of people that made their way west and tamed yeah, just put a the Indians. Put a 10-gallon hat on him. And put I'll, a 10-gallon hat on him and stick him out. And, and, you know who he is. Yeah, he's just right. the kind of guy. He's, he's a cowboy. Right. That's what he is, and he's going to do some cowboy stuff. And he's going to get a chance to do some cowboy stuff in the boring, stupid big city. And he's just going to do some cowboy stuff. And so you wouldn't feel as much need to set the table. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Mm-hmm. And I think Ben, you saying like, this was the first time anybody done that. I mean, you cannot undersell that part of how exciting this book must have been. If somebody had never read a basic chase, we've all seen so many it's TV ubiquitous shows. To us it's now. just like, we, mm-hmm. you don't have to even like it's movies its or genre. TV. Yeah. It's just, yeah. I'd say the closest modern analog, which that pops into my mind for this exact thing, which is a hugely popular right now, is the Reacher. He's just a guy. Even there, you got way more backstory and setup and stuff. But basically, right. what those stories boil down to is he's a hero for some reason. He wanders into a random situation and then he kills a bunch of bad guys and dads everywhere. Love it. And there's just just what he does. That's yeah. It's just it's. Can you imagine if your whole life was just wearing a je- wearing jeans and t-shirt and carrying around nothing but a toothbrush and being awesome? Yeah. 
just and and being bigger than everybody and able bigger, to- stronger, and smarter than everybody, and just being able to kill the crap out of all the bad guys and be your own force of justice wherever you go, then just disappear. Yeah, and I mean, I have actually read a couple. It's of Batman, those. but yeah. But Batman has like atmosphere and paraphernalia and stuff and things and a tragic backstory. You know, Batman like is has all this bat gadge and no, well, pun very much intended, I guess. Pun intended, but apologized for. But you know, well, what what this guy does have, which is something you could find in British novels of this kind, like James Bond, is the government. Like he's on board with the authority structure. He like wants to work within it. He's not interested in being a vigilante. Actually, he's like. Oh, phew, finally, I'm not a vigilante anymore, you know, halfway through the book. Now, that is not an American idea of this kind of hero. No, it's very, and he's so, not like, Sir Walter, I'm going to tell you how it is. He's like, yes, no. yes, Sir Walter's obviously finally, on my side. Sir Walter, oh, finally, someone to appeal to above me. Yeah, we're both like some good no. chaps. We're both good eggs. And, and that's something I've even noticed, uh, you know, in a different kind of book, the YA novels of Diana Wynne-Jones. Like, mm-hmm. She has that flavor. Like, yeah. oh, yeah. Yay for authority. You're like, who are you? Don't yeah, you know what era you're in? Something like, very un-American about yeah, it. Yeah, she hand breathes the, the poison of that, at least. Yeah, no, it's I've noticed that in those kinds of things, too. And it is funny. It is striking how my favorite part in this book, which is really silly, is when they make their final plan to go and bust the bad guys. And there's all these government officials and lords and stuff like that. And Hene's like, I could, I, they'd sort of let me take over, take an, just yeah. take over everything. <laughs> you could, I think they could tell I was the sort of man that could handle these kinds of things. So they're all just deferring to me for some reason. <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't, yeah. like now it would be like, Sir Walter says you can't do it, but you're going to go rogue. And James Bond, you know, the dumbest thing about those Daniel Craig, James Bond movies is every movie he has to go rogue again and again and again. I hate it. Like just give him a mission and let him go. Bust a bad guy or something. Like, I, I want to see James Born Bond. Born Bond and Ethan Hunt. Yeah. No. I hate going rogue. It's my least favorite trope in all these kinds of adventure things. I understand we like our heroes to have a chip on our shoulder about authority. We're American. One man whatever. against the world. That's what you got to get it to. And going rogue is just the cheap, easy way to get there. But here's the thing about James Bond is it's fun that he's beating the system at its own game by being a part of the system. Like Sean Connery doesn't have any respect for the British government, but he likes having a license to kill. He likes sleeping with ladies and he, so he does his job. And if he could save the world at the same time, great. Like that's actually a more fun fantasy in some ways, a more fun anti-authoritarian fantasy, even than just he's bruised and battered and going rogue all the time like i don't know i just i think it's fun when these guys can defy the system but also be part of the system i always liked it when batman had a phone line to commissioner gordon and they were buddies i like it that patterson batman is buddies with jeffrey wright commissioner gordon like i think it's more fun that way when there's some institutional weight behind these guys i don't know why but anyway Good for you, Hanae. Structure of the universe. Structure of the universe, yes. I don't need them to just be like corporate lackeys or anything like that. But when there's some kind of structure to how they operate, I think it just adds extra juice to the story. Speaking of juice, oh boy, we are going into the Hall of Heroes. This is where we talk about the protagonist from this book. Let's talk about Hanae, Hanae, John Hanae. I don't know what this guy's name is is but richard richard Hannay, yes what a guy what a guy That's what you're supposed to say what i'd a, like to be like him a stiff upper lip 
I can be an ordinary Joe. If I'm just a sort of competent man of the world, I can find my way, fight my way through anything. He's a great guy. Body the British spirit. Yep. What it's supposed to be. He's comfortable in the low classes and comfortable in the high classes, but just he, keep him away from the middle just, class. Yeah, he doesn't want anything to do with the middle class. Tepid, lukewarm middle class. Ish. Who is a quintessentially middle class hero? Is there actually a quintessential middle class hero? Maybe there's Indiana tons Jones. Of them. Yeah, that's the first one I thought of too. I guess that's it. Huh. Okay. But even Indiana Jones, it's like he his Bruce Wayne getup is kind of middle class. He pretends to be a middle class professor guy, but then He's dining with Maharajas and stuff. He's either like scrapping by with Sola or he's dining in the palaces of kings. He's actually kind of more bouncing between high and low class when he's on his adventures. He's more like a soldier of fortune who would fraternize with high or low class. Yeah, but he's kind of bored when he's just like in the suburbs. Yeah, Tony Stark, very high class. Captain America, very low class. I wonder if it's it isn't easy to... I don't this but this might be total bull. I'm just throwing this out here as a theory. Peter but Parker. Peter Parker, but he's low class. He's middle. But he starts low. His the romance of Peter Parker is low class. No, it's low middle. Know. Though. I think it's pretty it's middle. middle. Class. Okay, fine. Low class is like poverty stricken. Peter Parker's never poverty stricken. He's just like his aunt always has enough to feed him and stuff. So. But like some a lot of storylines will be like we can't pay the bills or Yeah, but that's like lower middle class problems. Lower middle class. Okay. But he's not just like suburban. He's not suburban comfortable. Mild Morales, I will grant you, is uh, is fully middle class. Yeah. Peter Parker, I'm not. I'm not quite so sure. Miles um, is in expensive private school. Right. Yeah. My, oh, yeah. Miles is. Well, Miles, we could actually make an argument is high class in his way, but his dad's middle. His dad's a cop. Yeah. His mom's a nurse. That's yeah. upper middle class. Upper middle class. Oh, maybe there's lots of middle class heroes. I was just thinking, I wonder if it's easier to slot a hero into one of the two more romantic. It's easy to romanticize the high class. It's easy to romanticize the low class. It's not so easy to romanticize the humdrum middle class. Well, but your boy heroes are always going to come from a middle class background. Luke Skywalker is going to be middle class. Yeah, Harry Potter is going to be middle class. It's going to be the humdrum suburban that your life that you're being called out of to your on your hero's journey. Yeah, I think that's true. I think I could also argue that, like, for example, Harry Potter at least almost has a from rags to riches kind of feel to it, even though because of how he's treated and because he's an orphan. Right. He kind of feels like he's in poverty. And then once he gets to Hogwarts and starts to level up, he kind of feels like he's wizard class now, baby. Like he's on his way to being an aristocrat of his time and place. Yeah, but he's not because he's just going to end up as an or working in the Ministry of Magic. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. well, J.K. Rowling loves the middle class. That's one of the things that's charming about her books. And she loves the lower middle class, in particular the Weasleys. The Weasleys are such a sweet part of that book yep. series. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you who is aristocratic is uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Frodo is not middle class. Frodo no. is... Well, Sam's his servant. Right, mm-hmm. Exactly. You've got some lovable middle class or low class characters, but basically we're we've got low and high and not a lot of in between. Yep. And the guys that he thinks are really cool are the high class. Like, All Steven Spielberg heroes are middle class heroes. Yes, that's true. They're every man. Every protagonist is a suburban kid or suburban dad or mom or something. Well, I guess in my mind I was thinking hero more than protagonist. Protag- that's fair. You know, like like when we're going to imagine someone who's capable and cool and fighting bad guys and stuff, does, well, does that guy usually come from the middle class? Yeah, I, I guess the reason I went there was Luke and Harry Potter. And then for some reason, my mind jumped to Elliot. Yeah. 
Elliot's obvious. I mean, obviously, yeah. You could think of lots of middle-class protagonists. I mean, even Luke, I would say, he's obviously middle-class, but he's secretly an aristocrat. Like, he's, he, we need, he comes from Jedi, and he needs to become Okay, Jedi. fine, and he, he's he becomes, the he used son to be, of a princess. He's a Skywalker, a lord of the universe. Yeah. He just doesn't know it yet. He's not really. He's high-born. He's not low-born. Yeah, well, he's Arthurian in that sense. Yeah, exactly. But Anakin's not. But Anakin's low class. Anakin's virgin birthed by okay, the universe fair. or by Palpatine. By the force, by Palpatine, um, according to the, I think, comic canon. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to argue that Anakin's high class. He's, 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 he's well, poverty. He, he's, he's slave class. He's both. He's slave class, but aristocratically conceived. Yeah, well, that's kind of what's been in the back of my mind this whole time is we've always had aristocrat heroes and king heroes. and maybe Well, that's this, Jesus. Right. He's the king of heaven who is... Born in a manger to a low-class family. Yeah, that might be our favorite hero trope, which is what everybody loves, is this guy's actually a king, but he just doesn't know it, or everyone else doesn't know it, or he's going to find it out, or he's got to learn how. Yeah. Anyway, Richard Henning. Strength Hennig. hiding and weakness. Yes, exactly. But there's no strength hiding and weakness in Richard Henning. There's just strength hiding and strength. Cool guy. Anything else to say about this great hero? No. Well, that leads us into the opposite time, the time of the villain. Going to the villain's lair. What did you guys think about the villains? You got the Prussians. You got the Jews. The man who could hood his eyes. The man who could hood his eyes. (coughs) The man with the lisp. (laughs) (laughs) Memorable. I will say one thing that does not uh, pass the ocean of time, one thing that doesn't hold up about this book at all, that's just... You would just wouldn't do it this way. It just strains credulity. <laughs> Although maybe there's a way that you would do this trope now, but just the idea that this guy is always meeting someone. He's like, I took one look at him and I decided he was a good chap and I'd share the deepest conspiracies <laughs> of the world with him. <laughs> and then he'll meet another guy and be like, I could tell he was a rotter and actually probably a double agent. Just and the physiognomy uh, was a big deal at that time. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Maybe the way we do that trope now is we do like the Sherlock type, like I'm a super autistic genius that can read someone with, right. my, with my hyper empathetic whatever. Yeah, I read their body language as opposed to I read their physiognomy. Right. But we would make it into more of like a regular people can't actually do that sort of thing. Right. Whereas this that's is just power. like – the chap came into my hotel room and I decided I trusted him and was going to go on a big adventure based entirely on random things he was telling me. On the size of his cranium. Right. <laughs> I measured his cranium the, the, with the one of those. The breadth of his forehead. <laughs> I took my weird claw tool thing out and measured. Calipers, we call them. Calipers, yes. We were going to talk about villains. Yes, villains. There's not much to say. There's the Black Stone. Is that the name of the bad guys? Uh, yeah. yeah, it's the name of the, black, of the bad guys. Is it all the Germans? <laughs> Who is it? They are the Germans. Yes. Und you will fear us. Sorry. No, it's... But they're so. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, something. And yeah, they're the world's best method actors. Yeah, they really are really good. They're well, really... until he shifts everything <laughs> in his mind, and then he sees that uh, what looked like dignity was actually nefarious scheming or whatever. <laughs> Or at oh, the end, man. the ending is quite silly. It's like, yeah. oh no, is he going to blow the whistle or not blow the whistle? <laughs> <laughs> like, why not just arrest these guys and sort it out later? Sort it out later. 
Well, there's a, half a chance that these guys are okay. But if they're not, the if they're everything I think they are, everything they appear to be, everything that all our clues have led us to this entire time, they're going to overthrow the world right. and plunge us into World War Three. Let's blow the whistle and find out later. Yep. But it is kind of, I do enjoy that last <laughs> chapter quite a bit. Um, what do they play chess with them or something like that? Bridge. Bridge, yes. yeah. And the guy's like, oh my, I was just at the club when that happened. Boop, boop. This does belong to a genre, I think. It's a little bit downstream of a genre called invasion literature, which was quite popular in Britain. We talked about it in our maybe, Ben might have talked about it a little bit on our episode of Sanity at the Movies where we talked about Big Trouble in Little China because the Fu Manchu stories that that's riffing on are very much part of invasion literature. Just the idea that things are astirring and we're afraid that somebody is going to invade our little island and destroy our way of life. And you see it in the works of like G.K. Chesterton. Like anybody that's at that time is just like, man, there's a lot of others out there. I mean, I suppose. That's a great Patrick Swayze movie about the same thing. About there being a lot of others out there. To Red Red Dawn. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> it took me a minute. I was like, Roadhouse isn't about that at all. <laughs> <laughs> Point Break? Like, Ghost? <laughs> Some of my amazing polls there. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty amazing. Uh, Patrick Swayze, he made four or five movies that people like. Yeah, but the, yeah, just the idea that the other is out there, whether it's those Jewish bankers, we've got that trope in here, whether it's the Germans, whether H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds is one of the most famous examples of a big invasion literature metaphor where he, instead of making it the Germans, he makes it the Martians, and man, did that capture people's imaginations. Steven Spielberg said, they're the terrorists. They're the terrorists. And I, for my, for one, for my money, that really captured my imagination. That movie is very visceral, I would say. It was the right time. Yeah, it was the right time. But I mean, yeah, like the shot of, like they're in the car screaming and fleeing as chaos. People are turning to dust. Pe- people turn to dust behind them. He gets <laughs> back to the place and he's covered in dust and. Like the dust of dead people. Realizes it's the remains of all these people that he was running through and freaks out. Yep. Uh, it's pretty visceral. We should watch that movie. I like that movie. I think. I don't know. I didn't like it, but maybe I'd have a better opinion of it now. I felt it. I'm not sure I loved it. I'm not sure I felt I like it was a good it. movie, but I felt it. I really felt it. Just the of those tripods and everything I thought was really powerful. Well, but, you did like two 9-11 movies, and that was one, and then the other one was Munich. Munich was one, yeah. Not like Munich. I never saw that one. I, kind of gross. I liked, I think there's an argument to be made that that's a pretty great era of Spielberg. The Minority Report, War of Worlds, War of the Worlds, like the early Audie Spielberg. I always loved Minority Report. I've never wanted to go back to it because I suspect it doesn't, doesn't hold, hold up. up. But. Yeah, but it's such a, I went back to it several years ago and I just thought, you know, okay, th- there's a lot that doesn't hold up, but there's a lot that still does. And you just see so much of how. He either was ahead of things or he was shaping things or both. He was just tapped into the zeitgeist of where things were and where things were headed. And it's pretty amazing. Hmm. Maybe it's what they call predictive programming. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. I mean, if I'm Apple, then I'm going to design my products based on, hey, I'm glad we don't have to wear gloves, though. Yeah, the glove idea was stupid, but the intuitive touch base. Yeah. Visual eye tracking stuff. Ads tailored for you. Yeah, I don't know. It all feels very prescient. And he has a jetpack and he lights some hot dogs on fire with it by accident. 
like how sometimes Spielberg can't help himself even when he's trying to make a really somber kind of dystopian movie. He's like, hey, we can I got have a great hot joke. dogs. <laughs> I got a great joke. <laughs> Trust me, the kids will love this right. one. <laughs> you remember those gophers? You remember how much they liked the gophers and Indiana Jones and the dial of the crystal spaceman? Man, I really can't pull the name of that movie. I wasn't just doing a bit there. What is that Kingdom called? Of the Kingdom of the Skull. Crystal Skull. There we go. All right. It's so darn memorable. Guys, anything else to say about the villains? The guys that are chasing are a good guy. They are at that. They've got aeroplanes. That felt very much like maybe Hitchcock had that in mind when he did North by Northwest. North by Northwest. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Like the I'm running through a countryside and there's airplanes after me. Well, guys, man, I should have got to this earlier because there's going to be a ton of conversation here. Secondary characters. (laughs) We are entering into the crawlway of secondary characters. I like that road, man. I like the guy where he's like, and then I ran across Biff. He'd been a real <laughs> idiot. <laughs> so I punched him on the nose or sort of stole his car. <laughs> Don't you know I'm the guy responsible for the Portland Place murders? If you're and not I'm careful, there'll be another too. one. <laughs> oh, uh, he just runs into it's just an endless series of coincidences. Yes, there's a lot of coincidences. That's all that there is, really. Well, but how big is England? Well, it's like the size of Indiana or something like that. Well, he's I mean, in Scotland for a good portion. Okay, how big is Great Britain? The United Kingdom is about 2.8 times smaller than Texas. There are 11 states which could fit the UK inside of them. Hmm. Weird. I'm just saying, if it was Indiana. The United Kingdom is about the same size as Michigan, it says here. Okay, so that's fairly comparable to Indiana. If we were on some adventure... It wouldn't be that hard for us to. It run wouldn't into be people. that hard to run into people in it across the state in any part of the state. For goodness sake, I don't know how many times I've been on vacation in Florida or someplace like that and seen people from my hometown. Like, oh hi, you're here. Like that happens all the time. Hmm. Okay. It's weird, but it happens. Yeah, and, yeah I've had some weird things like that happen too. Um. But I think the counter argument to that is. Fiction actually is not allowed to be as random as real life. Fiction always has to feel like it has a point. It, okay, fine. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna argue that. I'm just trying to make a little space. No, for no. It. I think I think you're making a noble argument. I also think this book is really silly, and probably its author would be the first to admit it. But uh, but you're right. Anything else to say about the secondary characters, Sir Walter? You guys got Sir Walter thoughts? What a guy! What a guy! What a guy! Able to. Trust this dude suspected of murder and, oh, you were cleared. The guy took care of you and now we're all on the same page here. It's good stuff. Yeah, it's great. All right. I'm going to fish some more. I'm going to fish. Hey, guys, we're. (laughs) Oh, man. It's the roadster driving through a very twisty and turning road, it sounds like. Leading us into twists and turns. Ben, what was your favorite twist and or turn from this novel? Hard question. <laughs> There's so many of them. Uh, let's see. I I just have a really hard time answering that. Every twist and turn felt like not a twist or a turn. Kind of it just felt like it, it felt so arbitrary that I am having hard. Even though I enjoyed it decently, I'm having a hard time. I did. I do always like the trope of I. I think I'm finding safety, and then it's the bad guy's lair. That's that's a fun one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I 
would have liked that if that hen felt equally arbitrary or... Well, these guys are so careful that they're plotting the downfall of Western civilization, uh, but they lock this dude in the basement with all their dynamite. And they lock him there, and they lock him there insecurely. And he's and they don't think he's a guy who stumbled into some information. They think he's a super spy. There's just a lot of well. If these guys were like, if true, you stop to think about it for half a second, it's all stupid. If these yeah. guys were villains in the vein of like a an actual James Bond villain, well, James Bond villains I admit do make stupid mistakes, like tying him up in a room with a trap and leaving him to die instead of just shooting him. But they should know that this guy is proficient with dynamite. Like they should already know everything about this guy. Like they've had time to figure out who he is and where he comes from and what his skill set is. But be that as may, my favorite. But <laughs> from a mining colony like Lando Calrissian. Yeah. <laughs> now I didn't quite know what to do with C four, but I took my best guess and I put this wire with did exactly what needed to be done in the end (laughs) (laughs) put it in the right place just the right amount of the building didn't quite know how to achieve nuclear fusion but I I had had a rough idea idea from my 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 day studying physics with Albert Einstein (laughs) (laughs) oh man (laughs) no I'm not wonderful the German but I caught it what was clearly a Berlin accent. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of that one. Uh, I had a friend. He used to be, he was a master of disguise. <laughs> and from him I learned just the basics, you see. <laughs> Which allowed me to transform myself perfectly. About 20 times. <laughs> uh. Just, is, I'm just an everyman, you see. Just a sort of everyman. There's no reason that I should be any good at any of this. I just happen to be good at everything. <laughs> I did like the disguise craft. The, the, the idea of fitting in with your environment and that you could have the best, like, fake beard, but you'd still, if you don't know how to wear it, that stuff was kind of fun. That, that felt like the most credible spy craft I thing. Actually, I agree. I think it's actually really credible uh, for the same reason. It's sort of like the same idea that you it's super easy to steal something if you act like you belong there and you are supposed to be doing what you're doing. Right. That sort of thing. Even when I was working as a commercial painter, there were times that I had to just play a role. You go into a place and it's just like, if you ask permission to go back and fix something after they're already up and running, they're not going to give it to you and they're going to cause you all kinds of problems. You show up and you're just like, Hi, I'm here to do a thing. You walk back. You act like you own the place. You act like you're superior to everybody. You do your job and leave. You realize how easy it is to, you know. I really do believe that. I think a guy with a blazer, a white guy with a blazer and a clipboard could get into the deepest room in the Pentagon just by walking in with confidence. I, I, I really do think that's basically not an exaggeration that's what i've seen it i mean the pentagon's a silly exaggeration but that it, yeah uh, i mean that in particular is an exaggeration but in general that's not an exaggeration a white guy with a clipboard or a white woman with a clipboard mm-hmm. nicely dressed yeah not too nicely dressed just the, or a black woman with a clipboard for that matter somebody who people are just going to like not be ready to question right but you put a clipboard in their hand you give them a blazer you give them just the right kind of clothing and say i'm here to inspect x y and z own it, act with confidence, confidence your way in and out of things. I think it's super easy. And it's the only way to really pull something like that off. Yep. So there you go. A genuine bit of observation in 
the 39 steps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was a janitor and it's in, you know, unlocked buildings and stuff like that, it was a really eye-opening working at a Big Ten university just to see where you could get access to just wearing a janitor. I mean, I don't have any specific examples. Right, mind, and you wouldn't like, even have to... People are going to avert their eyes at you if you're a janitor. Right. right? People, They're not going to, like, they don't want to notice you and they don't want to interrupt you and they don't want to question you and they don't want you to not be doing your job and they don't maybe want to be mingling with that particular class of person. And there's all kinds of reasons why you put on your brown utility shirt or whatever it was or your blue utility shirt mm. and push around a mop bucket and you really can get just about anywhere you want to go. Yeah. We did. I mean, we didn't do it to nefarious ends, but it was just like, oh, crap, I left something in the president's office or something. like that. You just, you just walk in there. Nobody cares. You yeah. walk past people. It could be during the day. You walk past the receptionist. Like, you just do it as long as you don't make a deal of it. Yeah, just act like you're supposed to be there. Yep. And if somebody says, hey, then you just mumble something that sounds halfway plausible and yeah. keep walking. Don't worry. I just have to get my this or that or... People, I have to check on this thing real quick. Like people don't like making trouble. Mm-hmm. They have their own problems. They'd rather it, they'd rather you not be a super super thief. And what are the chances of you being a super thief anyway? So I know it's like a trope, but I always buy that in movies when you know when the hero dresses up so that he can get into you know he's just a janitor or something. I, I think that's how you would do it. I got onto as a college student. I got onto I use football field in the middle of the night. Got the janitor to let me in with some buddies. Just acted like I was supposed to be there. Hey, can you come unlock this door for us? We need to get on the field. Yeah, well, that was the other observation I had as a janitor is whatever. We don't want to get in trouble. It's not our job to – right. like, if somebody if somebody just says with confidence, I'm the this and I need access to that, Right. nobody's going to question that. Yeah, and you just like – you have enough confidence about you and enough whatever, and it's like, oh, he must be one of the football players or team managers or – one of the dozens of a support staff that, you know. Yep. Yeah, it's really true. So there you go. Future budding thieves or people that need access to top secret locations. That's what you do. And then what they remember is that it was a janitor. What they remember is it was a guy wearing the IU clothes that looked like a whatever ball player or something. They don't remember you. Right, exactly. You're, they remember the, the character that you played. Mm-hmm. They remember the uniform. Yep. Well, the thing that I remember about this book is the style. And <laughs> we are entering now into the salon of style. All those French salons full of receiving and partying cocktails and stuff, as you can tell from the music. Now, Ben, how do you feel about the style? 39 Steps. Mm, like, dude's a very competent writer, very happy to you with a very big vocabulary, very happy, content with slang, very acquainted with various realms of upper and lower class, genuinely acquainted, knows all the words for all the things. Found myself looking up lots of British slang or British words that are archaic now that I had no idea what he was talking about or what these things were. And that actually was fun. I was like, this is kind of cool. You're introducing me to some things I've never heard of. Um, there's not a lot more to say about the style than that. It's competent. It's workmanlike. It reminds me of some other sort of pulpy books that I've read that don't ask a whole lot of you. But at the same time, because it's older, because this guy was really educated, 
there's a level of craftsmanship in the prose and in the description even of the countryside that is well above the average of what you'd find in a one of these kinds of things written today. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I love reading another centuries or another time period's trash. It's, it's just yeah. always fun yeah. to see, like, you can always get something more out of it, even if it's just observing and being amused by the cultural differences. It's just, and generally speaking, older trash is better written. Yep. Not a lot else to say. I mean, it's not remarkable style. It's not beautifully written. It's not really anything. It's not distractingly it's all... bad in any way. Yeah, it's not no, it gets the job done yeah. at every point. It gets the point. job done. That's right. Yeah. You yeah. see what you're supposed to see. You understand what you're supposed to understand. Yeah, it's kind of bland. Yeah, yep. there's nothing very writerly that's going to be like, oh, it's very poetic or really nice or striking. Yeah. But also nothing that's just going to be like, what a pig slop am I? Right. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, I wish that he cared more about atmosphere. Not by which I don't mean, like, I need long descriptions of locations and stuff. Obviously, that's the worst. But I just mean, like, making me feel like we're in Scotland now. That place has its own character as opposed to England, as opposed to... That is one of the things that... I didn't feel too bad about that. We got some bogs and... Yeah, we did. We did. There's a lot of landscape description. There's a really famous... Farmers and shepherds and... I, I need to find this essay by C.S. Lewis. We've talked about it on the booking before. I was thinking of this um, very thing. The the essay about there being two kind of two kinds of readers is that the one? It's called on stories, right? Or yeah, something? something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he describes a passage from the Last of the Mohegans where Pippi Longstocking or whatever his name is, Daniel Day Lewis is there, and he's fishing or something, and there are some bad guy Indians sneaking up on him with tomahawks. And he describes the thrill that he felt reading this as a kid. And then he describes talking to a friend and his friend saying, the thing that I hated about that book and, and thought it was boring was the fact that they were in America, the fact that they were there were trees, the fact that it was Indians. Like what I just wanted was the suspense of bad guys sneaking up on good guys and all the other stuff got in the way of that. Like it would have been just as good if it was two guys with guns sneaking up on a guy in an apartment. <coughs> And C.S. Lewis realized it's not that you're a bad person and I'm a good person, but we are two fundamentally different kinds of readers. You want something different. Like for me, the romance of I'm in a this untamed wilderness and there are these savages sneaking up on me with tomahawks is is the excitement. You remove that, you strip it away, and you don't have anything left that's interesting. Whereas for you all that atmosphere is what's getting in the way of the thing that's interesting, which is antagonist. And C.S. Lewis is like, this explained to me why I never liked Alexander Dumas and the Three Musketeers and stuff like that, because mm-hmm. it's just an in after in after in after in after D'Artagnan. Like there's D'Artagnan could just as easily be a soldier as a musketeer. It's just stuff happening. There's nothing uniquely French or musketeery or it's just bad guy, good guy, romance, whatever. And I, I C.S. Lewis don't like that. And I really resonated with that. And I think I basically agree with C.S. Lewis. It's why I love Raymond Chandler. It's why Jake had trouble with the first Raymond Chandler, I think, that we read on this podcast. And and then came once you knew what it was and came back to it later, you liked it. But but it's like Raymond Chandler is all atmosphere and just doesn't even care about. Well, it's some of it. A lot of it, I think, is expectation. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a detective novel. Yeah. I expect and I'm looking forward to plot heavy right thing and there's just like nothing there there's nothing there yeah but coming back to him with farewell my lovely 
was just a lot of fun because I, I had a different set of expectations and he's a really fun, enjoyable writer. Yeah. Well, anyways, as far as where this book falls on the spectrum, I'd say, yeah, there's a little Scottish character, but also if this was set in America, if this was set on a foreign country, like it wouldn't change it that much in terms of the way this guy approaches it. And that is part of what makes it a little bit more boring to me is there's not, <coughs> not a lot of like, the feeling of what it would be like to be on the run in Scotland as opposed to any other place in the world. Like what would that, it's what a movie could probably bring to this. That would be, that would add a lot of character and flavor and fun would be like, he's running past the shepherdess girl and the, he's got to put on a kilt. I mean, these, I don't know anything about Scotland. Obviously I'm just grabbing cliches here, but he does end up putting on a kilt. I mean, he does do some of the things you're talking about. He runs into Scottish peasants who like take him in in a particular way feed him very particular food yeah i don't know i guess it just and, for me at least it didn't just didn't have the uh, no i know feeling. what you mean it's like it has it has all it has the notes but not the music kind yeah of. exactly exactly it didn't make me feel anything like yeah scottish anything else to say about the style no mm. no all right we're into the haven of reflection upon deeper meaning there is no deeper meaning <laughs> I mean, the deeper meaning is, yay, England! Yeah, that's right. Britain rocks. <laughs> Britain rocks. British can-do spirit and stiff upper lip rocks. You, too, could be the ordinary man, huh, quote-unquote, who steps <laughs> into an extraordinary situation and saves the day with your ordinary skills, quote-unquote. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah. The Germans are bad, I guess. I don't know. This book is people. This book has been dinged for its xenophobia by the modern left, and I would say, yeah, <laughs> ding it. <laughs> Go ahead. It's very dingable. Um, I, I don't. I'm not personally offended by that. But is this guy xenophobic in a way that no logger flies? Yes. I'm not going to try and pretend like that's not true. Uh, anything else to say about the deeper meaning in this book? Jake, you said you had like at least 20 minutes of stuff you wanted to say about the deeper meaning in this book. Really. <laughs> that is what I said, yeah. I was very taken. The religious associations that you had, like some, some <laughs> yeah, sort of Pastor indeed, Jake yeah, well, stuff. I, really, it was just my longing for the empires of the past that have now turned to dust before our eyes. Man, so. if we had the Christian prince. This book is really about an attack on the bourgeois and their petty values that allow the Germans, quote-unquote, to slip in among us and undermine our nation. And all of Western civilization. And in all the of Western civilization. I just, I read a book like this and my heart yearns for the halcyon days of Christendom that no longer is and mm -hmm. the types of manly men who, just ordinary Joes who populated it, who could do the, anybody in Buchan's day could have been Richard Hannay, but I dare you to find one man in a hundred today off the streets that could be Richard Hannay. Nay, a thousand. Man, there's we have a dearth of Richard Hannays in today's. It's a commentary post-Christian West. It's just revealing the sad state of masculinity in our times, and well, I do, I the, too. The cultural decay that led to it, thanks to the Jewish influence, really. Really, yeah. A scutter <laughs> is the final explains. problem. <laughs> scutter explains all about it in this book. It's, it's funny, for all that he's probably an anti-Semite, this guy was a Zionist by the end of his political career. Huh. Anyway. Well, 
I don't know. There's there's a line between actually actual xenophobia, which does exist and certainly did exist back then, exists now, and people just saying different races are different, which we aren't allowed to do then. And so like Chesterton, there's a lot of stuff that is kind of xenophobic, but also he's just like, this is the English character as I see it. This is the German character as I see it. This is the Chinese character as I see it. And you read it now and you're just like, oh, no, Chesterton, you'll be canceled. But he's just like asserting that. Painting in generalities that certain people are certain kinds of ways. Right. Which, you know. They are. Yeah. It's just true. Yep. It was Chesterton who said all good thought begins with generalization, right? Mm-hmm. It's true. Yep. Um, yeah. Okay. Any, any more deep thoughts anybody has? We all long for the Halcyon date return, the return of the Halcyon. We all long. For I the, forgot what I said. The Halcyon <laughs> days of Christendom. Of Christendom. Of early. Yeah. There you go. Of Christendom. Of an empire that no longer is. You said you were yearning for that empire as you read this book. I yearn for it. I don't have to be reading this book. I'd be drinking some water <laughs> or something. I just yearn for it all the time. Listen to some music and Coldplay comes on and I think, oh, oh, for the days. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we could be eating Pizza Hut right now. <laughs> Look at what they took. <laughs> Look at what they took from us. <laughs> Man, uh, uh, internet conservatism and Christian nationalism. Oh, my goodness. So lame. So lame. Guess what, guys? Pizza Hut was lame. <laughs> I still have nostalgia for it. I do, too. I love it. I'd, do any, I'd give anything to go back, but I can't. It's over. The chi- my childhood is dead. Build the pizza out of tomorrow, guys. Yeah. Build pizza. Build, raise your kids steps, to build. The, right. Raise your kids to build the pizza huts of tomorrow. Yep. Maybe your grandkids will live up to the pizza out of your past. Maybe but your it won't grandkids be you. will have a personal pan pizza to call their own. <laughs> no, but it won't be you. It'll be space pizza. It's we don't need personal. We're pan. going to Mars. Right. <laughs> Do not yearn for the personal don't you pan know what pizza the, of the aliens past. Want? Pen. <laughs> Build the space pizza of tomorrow. Uh, Only the Christian prince. He's the true Antichrist. Is, Who is Ben? Oh, Elon Musk. Oh, Elon Musk. <laughs> you can have your pie in the sky if you're willing to build the space pizza of tomorrow. <laughs> you can have your pie in the sky if you build the space pizza of tomorrow. I, you know, I don't think we could. We, we could support this podcast at patreon.com forward slash the book it is. There is no higher note to end on. No. Roll credits. <laughs> well, I wish we could, but we need to call out our patrons. Um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I will say the name of a patron. It will say Pizza Hut or? You can compare them to any pizza establishment that you think they deserve okay, to be compared well, yeah. to. I know what I, I'm doing. All right. The Artful Anthony Dodger and Bootstrap Betsy, Ben. Taroni's. That's a place right a here in town. Local joint. Little Anthony Cigar Store. Pizza Hut. The Immortal <laughs> Chelsea E. Oh, what's the place we... Roca Bar. Another local joint. Uh, Jimmy mm-hmm. Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Pizza Hut. And Renester the Lovebirds. A-Zip. A-Zip. Not local anymore alone, but started here. Still kind of local to the tri-state area though, right? Good stuff. Yeah. yeah. I don't think it was pretty far north, but yeah, I don't know. The did I say the Keith Master? Uh, no, okay, the Keith Master. Papa John's. Jade Katie, your cold and love cheese, and also C.S. Lewis, including W. Faces. Pizza Hut. You can get some good cheese at Pizza Hut. DJ Sam and G. 
Domino's. Benny Dan and Tiberius. Pizza Hut. Eric and Catherine from Beyond Window Breaks. Una 2 Pizza. Lavender's Green Dylan Dylan. Pizza Hut. Noah Constrictor. Pizza King. Merit Cheap. Pizza Hut. And the news, Colton hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese and brick red. And also Pizza King. Jiu-Jitsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. Pizza Hut. Midnight Ninja Ellen. Uh, Taroni's. Again? Yeah. I'm doing double Taroni's this time. <laughs> Doubling baby. down on the local place that no one <laughs> <laughs> listening to this podcast will have heard of. Jay of Rack and Ruin. Pizza Hut. Eric and Kip Camp Trap Kings were warm and love bees. Little Caesars. Sweet Jamie Sunshine. Pizza Hut. Cold Steel Cody. Easy. John Bombadilla, Bomb Dickity, and Captain Daniel is mate. Pizza Hut. There are 10 locations alone, and eight of them are in Indiana, and the farthest north is Lafayette. Mm. Two in Kentucky. Phrase it. Mm. Yeah. Saxophone Alex. Mod Pizza. Ryan, the Terror of Texas, and Eric of the Cream and Crimson, who long are stuck in the cold, please send cheese. Pizza Hut. Ben Solo and Kyler Ren. Dante's Pizza, another local place no one's ever heard of. John Lewis have ever eaten it. Mm. I can think of at least one more chain and two more local places. John the Cosmic King of Chaos. Pizza Hut. Matty Matty Matt Man. Trying to think of the chain, man. Little Caesars. I said that one. Did you say a someone who would have worked for Mr. Little Caesar? Did you say Noble Romans? Oh, I didn't say Noble Romans. Noble Romans then, for sure. Any are you okay? Get your gun. Pizza Hut. Noble Romans is an Indiana thing, but I don't know that it's... I is think it, it might really? be Bloomington. Well, it's, here. it's definitely here in town because there's one in that crappy dead mall. Good? There used to be a really awesome Noble Romans in town on Green River Road that you'd go to as a kid. And you could, you have a whole row where you'd watch them make the pizzas and then there were party rooms and there was a whole, they'd drop a big projection screen down and they would broadcast games on their projector. It was really, really cool. Sounds and fun. And so you'd have a lot of team parties there. Huh. That place kind of, just died though, didn't it? Oh, yeah, it's gone. Dora Ragnar Josh Donato's Lady of the Crystal Lake Pizza Hut. <laughs> Jake thinks for a second. And a Mysterious Phantom Godfather Pizza. Uh, Jeremy the Dark Hooded Lord of Death and the Brooding Bride Maya Pizza Hut. Remains of the J Pizza Hut. <laughs> Lamorta Trenton. See, I thought this was true. It began on the campus of Indiana University as a pizzeria in mm. 1972. Mm. That's what I thought about Noble Romans. Now, Azip actually began by Evansville people in Lafayette for the same reason. They got a grant while they were students right, right, at right, Purdue right, right, right. and did the same thing. Mm. So that's maybe sort of the flagship, but there are like three in Evansville and one in Newburgh. And then there's like, there's like Lafayette, Indianapolis, Bloomington, and Sparrow Henderson or something. Huh. But it's cool yeah, and really good. It's great. If you're in the area. You get a chance. You should get it. Check it out. That's great. It's yep. like the subway of pizza if that was a compliment. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. If it was, a, if it was, I don't know, upscale. Upscale. But cheap. Yeah. But still kind of upscale. First yeah. imagine that subway was good. Yeah. And then imagine that there was a pizza place like subway. There you go. Lamorte de Trenton. You did that one? Yeah, but I don't think anyone gave me pizza a pizza association. There we go. Oh, I thought Jake had. <laughs> Daniel Man Among Men. Oh, Papa John's. Jen, who strikes every now and again. Pizza Hut. I thought everybody. What was the pizza? Oh, you didn't say Pizza Bank, I don't think. That's in town. There's Burger Bank. Is there Pizza Bank? Yeah, we've got all kinds of banks where you can deposit Man. your pizza. Thank you, Donut Bank. There's Fat Boy's Pizza, but I didn't want to give that to anyone. It's too good? <laughs> it's too fat. P-H-A-T, Jake. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you're afraid of the associations it's great pizza it's, some people would say it's the best pizza in town have you had it i have it is great or what 
It's worth trying. You might decide it's... Is it better than Taroni's? It's more like Una Pizza style. Taroni's is Una Pizza style, though. But it's not as loaded with... When you th- when mm. I think of Una Pizza style, I think okay. like you've got this much yep. crust, and you've got like this big a layer of cheese that's yeah. just like a solid mass of mozzarella on top. It's like that style. Mm, okay. All right. Taroni's is more spare. Yeah. But heavy with toppings. Heavy with toppings, but more spare with the cheese. And this is more very cheese heavy, but good with its toppings too. It's just going to be a question of if you like, if you latch on to any one of their specialties, but I know people that live all over, like there's a place, there's a joint up around Hopsat called Sandy's that people. We've been there with John. Yeah. Our friend John. People love that and they'll go up there for that, but people will come from the West side and from the North side and from Hopsat to come down to fat boys. Really? Yeah. Which is just down if you don't know, Covert, it's just down right? the road from right. here. Okay, I'm going to try it sometime. Yeah. I'll try Fat Boys too. That and what's the place, the New York style pizzeria that I like so much, my wife and I. I lost its name. On I know no, it well. On, on North Green? Yeah. It's Lombardi's. Great. Lombardi's. Excellent. I don't know that I've ever tried it unless I tried it once at your house. You did have it once at our house. Yeah, yeah, I remember. That is good. It is. It's good. It's even better, like fresh. Just go there and get some. Yeah. It's awesome. Cool. No. I hope this is all recorded. No, no, no. This is it going in. Okay, be. It's going in. How often do you guys think about noble Romans? Because I think about it all the time. Every day. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that was when I realized I'd been wasting my life. <laughs> Yep, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> it's, that's me. <laughs> You're probably wondering why I've been wasting my life <laughs> recording this podcast. Why were we talking about pizza? <laughs> we didn't really know. <laughs> we talked about pizza so long, it was no longer pizza. It was more like free pizza. <laughs> <laughs> now, Chip, I wish I had a good comeback for that, but I just can't think of anything to say except uh, shut your mouth. It would have to be a good opening statement in order for me to have a good comeback. So. All right. Whatever. Here's your content, little piggies. <laughs> Enjoy your swill. We obviously don't care for you. No, we do. We care for you a lot. We don't even think you're little piggies. And the fact that Ben can do just such a good impression of my voice and that he would say something, use it to say something like that, to call our listeners little piggies. I'm just a piggies. jerk. You should never have hired me. Yep. I, yep. That's true. Oh, my goodness. All right. Until next time. We don't do that here. What don't we do? Until next time. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Sorry.